This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I want to play you a scene from a movie that had a very powerful effect on my childhood. It's actually my sister's favorite movie uh, from our childhood. And... Well, I'll just go ahead and play it. This is the first time I've watched this, probably since I was like, I don't know, seven. Bambi? Bambi, come here. Bambi and his mother are out walking in the snow. New spring grass. Then suddenly, the music changes. There's an ominous feel to the scene. Bambi's mom can tell something's not right. Bambi, quick, the thicket! The first shot rings out. Bambi's mother yells to Bambi to keep going. Hey, Bambi! Don't look back! Keep running! Keep running! The last shot rings out loudly, and almost as loudly, my young heart's conviction, hunting is wrong. How could anyone watching this scene think that that was okay? That was it. I'd made up my mind. Just like thousands of children had before me and for the last 75 years since Bambi was released. I'd be willing to put money down that if you're a millennial like me, your opinion of hunting was formed in a very similar way. So today on Home Study, we're going to do something very, very different. We're going to talk about the topic of hunting, but we're going to talk about it in a completely different light, a whole new point of view. How many hunting podcasts do you know start by playing a clip from Bambi? Yeah, that's what I thought. None. Today we're going to look at this topic. Is hunting wrong? Is it something that we, as people who live in 2017, a time period where food raised on a farm, and actually food raised on a very nice farm, uh, you know, pastured product, something that lived outside a happy life, if we have access to that kind of food, do we really need to be heading into the woods with guns? We're going to let you answer that question for yourself. If you have been against hunting, if you have not understood hunting, if you think hunting is probably wrong, but maybe you haven't given it much thought, well, this episode is for you.
world that we live in is a crazy place, but you and me, we can each make it a little better. We can live a more sustainable life. We can become more self-sufficient. We can get more connected with the planet around us. And we can do all of this together. So everybody, cozy up. It's time for another episode of Homestead. Many of you longtime listeners of Homesteady know that I am a hunter, but I have not always been a hunter. In fact, as we talked about in the beginning, there was a long period of life in between seeing Bambi and actually shooting my first deer where I would have considered myself more on the anti-hunting side. And mostly, this was because it was something I was not exposed to as a child after watching that one Disney film. You see, my parents were not hunters. None of my grandparents were hunters. I was not familiar with how it worked, the traditions, the facts, or the feelings. Once my wife and I had a son, and we learned a little bit about our food system, factory farms, we realized that we wanted a better option for our family. But at the time, we could not raise our own food. We were in an apartment, third story, and so the only option for good quality meat that we could afford at the time was what was running around in the woods. I never fired a gun, I never killed an animal other than maybe a fish. And for some reason, those never seem to count when people say they don't eat meat. Poor fish. I started educating myself on hunting. I got a few books out of the library, subscribed to a couple magazines, and watched a couple YouTube channels. Over time, I became more comfortable with this idea, right up to the point where I harvested my first deer. And now today you're going to be listening to a podcast that's edited by me, someone who's been hunting to feed their family for the last going on nine years. Obviously, I'm a biased source of information. I can admit that. I think hunting is a great way to feed your family. But today I'm not going to convince you based off how I feel about the subject. You see, everybody makes decisions one of two ways. You either make decisions based on facts or based on your feelings, maybe the third option somewhere in between. There's the accountant mics of the world who want hard numbers to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to. There's people like me who kind of go with their gut. And then there's your hybrids. Today we're going to discuss this topic, is hunting wrong, from both facts and feelings. And we're going to talk with two different men who grew up in a very similar life like mine, either not hunters or barely exposed. Two guys who really didn't care either way, Uh, Maybe they even had some negative feelings about hunting. And they're going to talk about why they are on a mission to change the perception of what hunters are, modern hunters. Like I said at the outset, this episode is really made with those of you who are not hunters in mind. We're not going to be telling war stories here. We're here to talk about what hunting is all about, the perception of hunting and how that needs to change, We're going to bring to your attention some facts behind hunting and some feelings. Feel free to pick and choose what you'd like. We're not going to tell you what to think. We just ask that you listen to this episode, maybe an episode you normally would have skipped. And at the end, if you think that maybe your mind has been changed a little bit, well, go ahead and tell us. We'd love to hear your comments back at the Homesteady blog or on social media. We're not trying to start a fight. That said, this first sentence by our first guest... Well, it might get an anti-hunter mad. At the very base level, every single one of us is a hunter. Whether we accept it or not, it is in our human nature. We have come from hunters. We wouldn't be here on the face of the earth if our ancestors had not been successful in that venture. All hunters, Dem's fighting words. This is Tyler, by the way, and he's used to people being mad about the idea of hunting. You see, early on in his professional career, he got involved filming hunts. Especially when I came back and I had posted some photos of, um, you know, some of the Cape Buffalo and and things like that, and and people would, uh, and this was back in the in the Flicker days, oh, people wow. would just freak out, just be like. I hope you get hit by a bus and I hope that, you know, you die a painful death and just started to say all kinds of crazy stuff. This kind of surprised Tyler. 
You see, he grew up in Texas. The average person in Texas, if they're not a hunter themselves, they have brothers or cousins or, you know, their, their grandma would go out and shoot a deer. Or, you know, so they've at least been exposed to it enough that um, it's an acceptable part of the culture. And Tyler actually grew up involved in hunting. I've always been interested in the outdoors. You know, my dad wasn't a big hunter, but, you know, we definitely at least went on a couple hunts a year, whether it was birds or ducks or, um, you know, sitting in a turkey blind or something. So growing up, hunting was something that was just normal to Tyler. It wasn't until he moved away to college that he saw a different point of view. But in California, you know, I had photography and, and film classes and had some very liberal people in these classes. And they were friends, right? They were people that I had become close with. Um, I just, I get along with people and I, I make friendships easily. And so it was a really interesting experience when I told some of them about what I was doing and they were appalled and they were like, I can't believe that you would do that. Maybe you can relate to this feeling. Maybe the idea of someone going into the woods with a modern day rifle and killing an animal, maybe it appalls you. Tyler was getting this reaction from friends, people that he respected and that respected him. Suddenly they came to this impasse where they thought what he was doing was horrible. A lot of times this conversation is thrown back and forth between hunters and anti-hunters. And you can be mean and it doesn't matter. But this was friends, people who Tyler wanted to understand him. He wanted to give them a good answer. But at the time, he couldn't. And at the time, you know, when I was 22 and had just graduated college, I didn't have the correct answer to those questions. I didn't know how to defend why it was okay. In my heart, I felt like it was okay, but I didn't, I had never been there. I'd never experienced it. And I don't really like to pretend that I know what I'm talking about if I don't. And a lot of people do that. So at the time I was just like, whoa, okay, sorry. I, we don't need to talk about it anymore. In this day of social media, that is kind of refreshing, right? Finding someone who doesn't want to just talk, pretending like they know when they don't. It's frustrating to me when people act like they're experts and they, they, they act like they're the final word on a subject about a place that they've never been to and they've never seen in the wild. And I just think that all of those people who think those things should, should, should at some point be required to go live in the wild and see how brutal the actual ecosystem is and how those animals don't care. They will eat you in one second flat for dinner and love it. How does Tyler know? Well, because he did what he wishes everyone who cares about this subject would do. He went and he spent time, boots on the ground, for years in Africa. guy my dad knew owned this video editing store in Dallas and the owner of this safari company was like oh we want to make videos for our clients and it just so happened that this guy was telling my dad at the right time and he was like oh well my son's about to graduate from uh, from film school you know and maybe you should call him and the guy was like all right I'll never forget you know my, my mother is from a very small town in Texas and I remember her calling me in like April you know we're supposed to graduate uh, in May, and she's like, Tyler, she's like, do you have a job yet? Do you know what you're going to do when you graduate? And I was like, well, Mom, actually, I got a job in Africa. And there was kind of this pause, and she goes, does it have benefits? And I was like, well, the benefit is going to Africa. all my graduation money to buy you know a couple of lenses and you know some a, a tent and moved to Tanzania I lived in the bush I mean it was like three hour um, charter plane out into the middle of a game reserve that was massive I don't even remember how many hundreds of thousands of acres it was and I filmed and photographed um, all of the hunting safaris for this one outfitter I, I went from the concrete jungle of Los Angeles to the actual jungle you know, it took me a few weeks to get adjusted, uh, just getting murdered by Tsetse flies every single day, dust, uh, dealing with the cameras and batteries and, you know, having to figure all that out. But after I got adjusted, um, 
it was probably the best time in, in memory of my life. Teller went from urban sprawl to telling time with the sun. I knew what time of day it was, sun. I, I learned how to track really well from these incredible village guys, um, you know, and, and got really, really um, it just in depth with, um, you know, the spiritual connection these guys have with the wildlife. So I was in what's called the Kilombero region. It's central Tanzania. It's a floodplain. And so um, you actually hunt by boat. And there's about 12-foot-tall elephant grass. And they, they call it elephant grass because in most cases the grass is actually taller than the backs of elephants. Insanely hot there. And jokingly, because it was so hot there, my buddy was like, let's shave a mohawk into your hair. It was so hot, Tyler was willing to give himself a mohawk. But believe it or not, that wasn't the scariest thing that the heat made Tyler do. You know, we're, we're sleeping in these pretty large canvas tents and they, you know, these are permanent camps, so they bring in a bed frame. There's a, the outside canvas zipper and then there's a, a mesh zipper, but the mesh zipper was broken and the canvas tent is way too hot in, in the middle of the, you know, African summer. So despite being in lion country, Tyler decides it's too hot to close the canvas door and because the mesh door wasn't working, he just left the door open in the middle of the African jungle. So I kept telling Georgie, who's the, the PH, the professional hunter, I said, hey, we need to get this fixed, man. This is pretty sketchy. There's lions. And he's like, you know, he's like, don't be a wuss. Like, All right, whatever. Of course, my bed's by the door. Tyler doesn't want to be the wuss. So he deals with it. One night, he wakes up in a cold sweat. I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't even remember what I was dreaming about, but it was not good. And I sit up, and it was about 3.30, 4 in the morning, and it was a full moon. So it's super bright outside. We're right next to the river. And I kind of calmed down and realized it was a bad dream. And about five seconds later, I hear, which is a male lion calling directly behind the tent. And I was like, oh, shit. I, you know, thought, okay, I should jump out of bed, run over there, untie both flaps, roll the flaps down, zip it, jump back in. But by the time I even flinched to think about moving, the lion called right next to my head outside the window. This thing steps out into the full moonlight about eight yards in front of me. And it, it's a, almost a 600-pound male lion. It's massive. I mean, this thing looked like a centaur. I mean, it's one of the biggest lions I've ever seen in my life. I, I reached down uh, to, to grab the bed frame. In, in the event that he came into the tent, I was going to try to flip the bed on top of myself. Um, and as I leaned down to grab the bed frame, the bed creaked. Of course, classic. And he just turns right around and just stares me right in the eye. staring me in the eyes, eight yards away from me, with nothing in between. The door was wide open. And it was simultaneously the most terrifying and beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. It felt like forever. I'm sure it was, I think it was about 10 or 15 seconds. I was holding my breath. And he just stood there staring at me. And his tail was, you know, kind of flipping back and forth like a house cat. And I've been around lions enough to know when they're going to charge. And he didn't seem like he was going to charge, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that it was a very dangerous situation. And eventually he turned around and walked over to the fence and scratched his face on the fence and then just casually jumped in the river and swam across and, uh, and went off howling into the distance. Literally, the next month, on the next safari, same lion, same tent, he comes back. But this time, the door was closed. And he laid on the front porch of my tent so that the, his, the weight of his body sagged the tent wall in. And he was breathing heavily, and it was like moving the tent wall back and forth. So 
he just came back to visit a second time and, and say hi. At that point, I kind of decided that, that that lion had become my spirit animal. Uh, more appropriately by the fact that this lion had a mohawk mane. It didn't have a full mane. It just had a mohawk. So I had a mohawk, and this mohawk lion shows up the next day and then comes back the next month, <laughs> next full moon. So, yeah, that was a pretty close call. This is one of the best parts of hunting. To be a good hunter, you have to be a good outdoorsman. And that means you're comfortable spending time outside in the wild. When you spend a lot of time there, you're gonna have experiences like this. And more often than not, the best hunting stories, just like here in this podcast, 20 minutes in, we haven't talked about any killing. It's focused on our love for animals. Hunters love animals just as much as non-hunters, maybe more. It might seem like a paradox, but it's true. And it's one of the facts that you learn as you dive into the world of hunting. Maybe that surprises you, that hunters love animals. There are a lot of other facts surrounding hunting that may surprise you. And that's what helped convince Tyler, over his years spent in Africa, that hunting was actually the best thing you could do to take care of wildlife. It really wasn't until I moved to Africa and I lived there for three years and was in the bush uh, hunting for food. You know, most people don't understand how that hunting model works. In Africa, Tyler learned how the hunting model really works. And those facts that he learned there, boots on the ground, that's what he's going to share with us today. So... Fact number one, there's a difference between hunters and poachers. A lot of the narrative that's created is that hunters are indiscriminate killers. Hunters uh, would be people who adhere to the rules and regulations in place from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, from uh, game wardens legally purchasing or, or filing for a tag that you are the, the animal you're harvesting is of a legal age or a legal horn size or you know whatever the regulations might be in addition to being in an area that you're allowed to be hunting so basically the term poaching refers to the people who do not adhere to the rules and regulations that are in place to ensure uh, a conservation effort a hunter is the tool in the conservation effort to keep animal herds healthy and in check. A poacher is working just for themselves and for their own selfish gain. They're not concerned about conservation. They're only concerned about what they're getting from the wild. And so in Africa, poachers would be, you know, the guys that get paid $10,000 by, you know, Chinese guys who want rhino horn or want ivory. It, it's a tough life and, and maybe they just don't have money and so that's very appealing to them to, oh, they get paid this money and they, quote, forget to uh, man their post that night. And then these poachers come in, shoot elephants, shoot rhinos, you know, take the horns, take the tusks and, and leave. You know, if you're buying a tag and you are following the rules, um, that's ethical conservation hunting versus someone who breaks the rule, which would be a poacher. Remember. There's a difference between a hunter and a poacher. And we're all in agreement that poaching is wrong. Now let's go to the next fact. Hunters produce more money than any other group towards taking care of our animals, a term often referred to as conservation. A lot of our national parks in the United States are paid for by duck stamps and deer licenses and fishing licenses and all of these guys and women who um, purchase these licenses. And most of, you know, a lot of them don't harvest animals, but that's the reality is that, um, you know, that that plays a major role in preserving, um, you know, the landscapes and the wetlands and, and the wildlife refuges and all that kind of stuff. Every year, I buy non-resident hunting tags for the state of Pennsylvania. 
Usually when I'm all said and done, I usually spend about $300. That all goes to the local DNR, the Department of Natural Resources. They get to take that money and use it to pay their staff who goes out and monitors the deer and the turkey and makes sure that there's trout in the waters and pheasants in the fields. I'm not always a successful hunter. That means I pay $300 to use towards the betterment of the herd, and I don't even kill a deer. More money for conservation is raised in this manner than any other. And it's especially clear when you look at the way it works in Africa. We'll use the country of Tanzania as an example. They have, that country is divided into um, game reserves, national parks, and open areas. National parks, Serengeti and Gorongoro, Kilimanjaro, no hunting is allowed in the national parks. Open areas are like public lands, but African animals are smart because they've been hunted for thousands and thousands of years, so they are hardly ever in the open areas. So the game reserves are, in most cases, larger than the national parks, and those giant tracts of land are leased to outfitters for 5, 10, 20 years at a time, and those outfitters um, are in charge of maintaining the integrity of the landscape and the wildlife population. So they do governmental censuses with helicopters and biplanes and trail cams and all kinds of stuff. And they say, okay, there's this many animals estimated, you know, of these species. And they take into account the migration patterns and all that kind of stuff. And they issue a certain number of permits based on that number that represents a certain percentage of conservation rate. And, um, you know, they'll say, okay, you, you can shoot 25 Cape Buffalo. You can shoot five Eland, um, you know, five roan, five sable, you know, 10 warthogs, all that kind of stuff. And there's game scouts that um, are, are government, uh, you know, government employees who are with the safari operators at all times. So think about what Tyler just told us. Here we have scouts that are out in these preserves. They're monitoring the herds. They're looking at their numbers. And they're using very expensive tactics. Game cameras, each of which costs hundreds of dollars. They're flying drones and helicopters and all this staff, all these different people who are, who are using these tools to make sure that they're doing right by the animals. Where does all that money come from? The safari operators can then sell these tags to hunters as safaris, right? So they say, okay, it's going to be a 21-day safari and you get this many animals on a license. Those, those animals have to be male to start with. They have to be over a certain age. The horns have to be certain size to ensure that the harvesting of an animal is an old, mature, in most cases, non-breeding male. Um, it, there's, then there's other regulations about not being able to shoot out of herds or prides or things like that, that you're ideally looking for these solo bulls that are, have left the, you know, they're living a solitary life and in most cases are on their way out. The money made from this conservation model doesn't only go to the people working with the wildlife. 30% of that money also goes to the local communities in Africa. Money that's collected from these high-dollar hunting safaris, 30% of that goes to uh, the local villages for schools and wells and medical. And they actually are sort of, the operators of the safari company have to work in collaboration with the tribal leaders um, to address their needs, and in a lot of cases, they are employing the some of the guys who would otherwise have been poachers by a safari company being in that area and being able to employ 10, 15, 20 of uh, the village men to be trackers or cooks or um, you know skinners or whatever. That provides a, a much more lasting uh, financial benefit, and so it's through not only um, you know the funds that are raised that do that, but they also pay the salaries of all the anti-poaching rangers that stay in the off-season. We've looked at some of these facts, but at the end of the day, Tyler makes a point which is hard to argue. You know, at the very base level, every single one of us is a hunter. Whether we accept it or not, it is in our human nature. We have come from hunters. We wouldn't be here on the face of the earth if our ancestors had not been successful in that venture. And I think that we all are given the luxury of choosing our lifestyle now, and we live in an affluent country where if we decide all we want to eat is is vegetables, that there are fancy, you know, four and five star restaurants that will cater to that. But this 
you know, at this point, it, it, it is a lifestyle choice, you know, at least for us having this conversation. I don't live in a situation where I have to hunt to survive. However, I choose because I don't know or trust a lot of people who produce meat, what they put in that. What did that animal eat? You know, what, what did they inject it with? How long has it been sitting there? Is it really organic? Or did you just put a sticker on that uh, without approval? So there are some of the facts surrounding hunting and why it is a great tool for taking care of wildlife. But here's the thing. In our modern day, hunting is not necessary to eat. And so because of that, it's a lifestyle choice. When you decide to become a hunter, you become associated with the word hunter. And in our day and age, that means something very different. It, it, it is a lifestyle choice, you know, at least for us having this conversation. I don't live in a situation where I have to hunt to survive. I guess I would say, well, this isn't a fact. I would just say that it's, it's become unfashionable to call yourself a hunter. But just because you go and hunt something doesn't mean you have to sign up for all the other stuff. There is a lot of collateral damage. There are a lot of people who do the term hunter disservice. And not only are we trying to distance ourselves from that, we're trying to lead by example so that folks who maybe want to have an organically harvested food, maybe they don't want to pull the trigger. Maybe they don't want to shoot a bow, but they could find someone who'd do it for them. Or they could at least learn more about it so that if the topic of conversation came up, they would at least be a little more educated and able to speak towards it. Tyler is not trying to win an argument here. He's presented these facts so he could try to change maybe your mind and what you think of when you hear the word hunter. Instead of picturing something negative, a poacher, someone who takes greedily from the world around them, you understand this person a little bit better. Maybe even are inspired to become a hunter yourself. This is exactly what happened to our next guest, Brad, when he started to see a different side of what a modern huntsman could be. Uh, my story personally looks like the um, the 80%. This is Brad. Brad Nethery, founder of Modern Huntsman. And Modern Huntsman a project that Brad, Tyler, and a few others have been working on has a mission. Modern Huntsman, in its purest form, is simply a mission to restore the narrative of hunting in our modern society. Brad was familiar with what hunting was all about. He spent some time with his dad growing up out in the fields. So growing up, I think by the time I was maybe 13, dad had bought me a a 20-gauge shotgun and uh, we went out to East Texas. You know, my dad and I, our relationship, we, um, we've been best buds since, man, forever. And um, so bonding was not hard for dad and I, and we would find fun and creative ways to do it. So obviously growing up in Texas, where, where hunting on the whole is a pretty um, understood and, and accepted um, activity, this was something we would do every every September. Um, we would go out at least once a year, and usually about once a year, and we'd go on a on a dove hunting trip. What we would do more so is enjoy some time together as father son, um, and and talk about life, and and we would have philosophical conversations, and then we'd have conversations about girls, everything in between. And hunting was essentially uh, a medium to uh, pull together some father-son bonding time. And to be honest, rarely did we pull a trigger. Um, and it was because we'd get lost in conversation more than anything else. This really hits home to me. I now have a seven-year-old son. Since the day he was born, I have been waiting for the time when I could take him out into the field with me. Just this last week, we got to spend our first bird hunt together. He didn't have an actual gun in his hand. What he was holding was a prop, but it was teaching him how to handle a gun in the field. 
And at the same time, we got to spend together side by side, walking with the dog that we've spent the last two years training for this moment, enjoying some time in the outdoors together, talking, but most importantly, just being together, father and son, sharing an adventure, something that more fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons, all of us are missing out on in a big way. This is what hunting felt like to Brad. So this thing is the most necessary tool that we have um, in human existence. That we have to eat, whether you are a meat eater or whether you're a vegetarian, uh, we do have to eat, and so all of us hunt. He never had a problem with hunting. Instead, it was the image of the hunter that he started to become unhappy with. It's just that the media from the hunting side of things, as well as the media, uh, the mass media, has portrayed hunting um, as a very distorted, um, ugly sport. Brad felt that the mainstream media and hunting media itself portrayed the common hunter as somebody... Kind of the Bubba uh, redneck in his uh, camo on the tailgate of his truck with the bloody white tail in one hand and the six-pack in the other. And it was a lifestyle choice that I, I didn't want to be a part of. It was something I didn't represent. And from both the hunting media and the general media, that was the visual that they were giving off. And it felt like to me that... Um, every every anti-hunting organization had all the ammunition they needed coming from internally in the hunting uh, industry. Brad isn't pointing fingers at any particular hunter. He's not saying it's wrong to go out and buy full body camo suits and go shoot a big whitetail. I do that myself. I have camo from head to toe and I go looking for big bucks in the woods. What he's talking about is the image that hunting media and mainstream media is depicting all hunters as. And if you're familiar with the hunting industry, if you watch the Outdoor Network, you'll probably understand what Brad's trying to say. I think that I do. I think what Brad is getting at is that there has been a homogenization of what a hunter is. Instead of portraying hunters as people from all over the world, tribes in Africa, who become master trackers, who can find an animal through dense elephant grass, or fathers and sons who spend time together in the Texas dove fields, talking about girls, or a husband and wife celebrating up in a tree stand together because she just got her first buck. Instead of portraying a hunter in that light, they're portrayed more like the hunters in the Far Side comics. A dumb fat guy wandering through the woods who's totally out of touch with the nature around him. It's more than just the beer he drinks or the clothes that he wears. It's the portrayal of someone who's only interested in shooting a giant trophy buck and who, after going through great lengths to try to kill this giant animal because of the size of its antlers, doesn't take any more than the five minutes it takes to snap a bloody selfie in the back of a pickup. A giant buck or a younger doe? Any animal that you have the privilege to take from the woods is a trophy in its own right. They're majestic, they're wild. They epitomize something bigger than ourselves and they deserve respect. They deserve to be treated as something sacred, a blessing that we're fortunate enough to take. It felt to Brad that the modern hunter had lost touch with the entire reason we took to the woods in the first place. To feed our families the best quality food that we could find and to enjoy time spent in the wild.
didn't want to be a part of it. So I disassociated from it entirely my whole life. Um, I had friends who hunted, and, and I didn't really necessarily think negatively of them. If you want to kill, great. If that's what you know gets your testosterone levels up, fine. Uh, but there's dead animals in the grocery store, and they're already dead. So kind of, in a way, was judging hunters uh, as kind of a motive. I guess, you know, what, you know, whatever floats your boat. But, I, you know, I'm eating what's already dead, so I'm doing my responsibility maybe a little better than you are. I just felt like I was more responsible than them, more educated because I went to the grocery store and got my meat and it was already dead. And there was a stewardship there that um, the math added up. Again, this came from a lack of education and a lack of understanding, uh, which where I think most people are at. Brad talks about the math adding up because of a lack of understanding. This is something that I've heard as a farmer and a hunter all the time. People ask you, what do you do? And you start talking and they learn that you either are a hunter or they learn that you raise your own animals for meat. And they say this sentence, which in my shoes is now ridiculous, but to them, the math adds up. Don't you know you can buy meat in the supermarket? What they're saying is there's already dead animals in the supermarket. You don't have to go out into the woods and find them and Try to outsmart them and and drag them out of the woods and butcher it all yourself. You save yourself so much work. To them, that's a bonus. It's as if they stumbled upon a man living in the woods who was cooking his dinner over a fire. And they said, hey, don't you know? There's a power grid you can connect to and you can have an oven and you could cook your food. You don't need to go through all this extra work being out here in the woods as if there's something wrong with enjoying a meal cooked over a campfire. It took years for Brad's perception to change, for him to stop thinking of his choice to go to the supermarket as one that was, quote, better than a hunter's who goes out into the woods. So growing up, that's kind of how I felt. And about three years ago, um, I was introduced to a totally new conversation that I'd never heard before. And it was coming from creatives in the hunting industry and brands who talked about something different. And they talked about um, less about the kill and, and more about what the effect of hunting is on on their life and it sounded more emotional it sounded more transparent it was focused on storytelling these stories caught brad's attention more than anything he had experienced in his childhood and now we get to the second half of this podcast you've heard the facts and for some of you maybe that's enough now consider the feelings because most of us either make a decision based off of fact or off of feelings. For Brad, suddenly seeing the softer side of the hunter, it appealed to him more. Listening to their stories, stories of encounters with lions in the wilderness, stories of fathers and sons who spent time together on the dove fields, stories that Brad suddenly found he could connect with. Like this next one, which is read by the author, Eamon Waddington. And it's just an excerpt. So if you want to read the whole story, head over to modernhuntsman.co and click on stories. Adam points the bow downhill to allow room to draw back his arrow. In a slow and smooth motion, he connects his trigger release to the D-loop and pulls back the 70-pound string until the cam locks in at full draw. He turns his shoulder perpendicular to the side of the mountain with his releasing hand tied up against his cheek. He aims down the sight. There is a moment of complete stillness where time stops. I've nowhere to look but Adam. I'm watching this man. I'm seeing our ancestors in him. I momentarily put myself in his shoes. I see him exhale a deep breath and in that same moment I hold mine. I want to know what is going through his mind. His finger placement switches from being in a safe position to being curled around the trigger. 
with the slightest jolt, the arrow is released. There is no loud bang, nor echo of a gunshot. There isn't even a momentary lapse of the bird singing up above. It is silent, the same it was half a second ago. Our ears pick up the scurry of leaves and twigs breaking ahead of Adam and the sound tumbles downhill. He looks back at me and gives me the thumbs up. I still have no idea what is going on, but I see a release of tension in his face. I pick myself back up off the ground and head over to him. He points out the spot about 35 yards ahead where a red deer hind was feeding. He confirms the arrow passed through the animal's vitals and that she'd run down about 80 feet towards a flowing creek. We head downhill toward the deer and there is an ultimate feeling of sorrow that flows through us. We find her lying in the leaves amongst the many wildflowers that adorn these mountains. She looks peaceful, but I still feel an ache in my heart. Adam takes a seat in the dirt beside her and runs his hands down her neck, straightening the fur into the lines of her body. He sits with her for 10 to 15 minutes, processing, correlating and embracing all the emotions that are endured when taking a life of such a majestic creature. As I watched Adam make his peace, I realised that this was an incredibly important experience in my life. There are people who can extinguish a life and be aware of that, and that's the extent of it. But then there are hunters like Adam. Hunters who see an absent glint of light in a creature's eye and completely acknowledge their responsibility and ownership of their actions. They pay their respects and are grateful for that life with every fibre of their being. It is a beautiful thing to witness and a difficult but remarkable thing to feel for the first time. Telling stories that talked so much about the way that um, when they would take the life of an animal that how emotional it was and how they would um, feel this deep um, remorse, but at the same time, they feel this deep pride and joy. And they couldn't really explain the dichotomy of emotions that were going on in their life. And I remember feeling this um, emotion of, um, I couldn't even put my finger on it, how it almost felt like I'd been lied to. Brad felt that all sorts of media hunting media that's produced by the different networks and magazines, anti-hunting media, the ads, the smear campaigns he'd witnessed, all the media that he had absorbed over his childhood and adulthood, he felt like it was a lie. He realized there were hunters out there who followed the rules, who followed the traditions, who valued this time in the woods for their experiences with animals for the amazing quality meat they could put on the table. And overall, to be a part of something, a story that's been in existence since man has walked the earth. Brad wanted to be a part of this, and he wanted to help these hunters, hunters who were quietly telling a story, contrary to what you might see elsewhere, he wanted to give these hunters a voice. I realized that the, the biggest need was that they didn't have a platform that really supported their voice. And they were doing it all independently. And brands like Yeti and Filson and Orvis and then um, creators who, are, who many of them are now our contributors to the first edition of our magazine, like Chris Douglas and Tyler and uh, Jillian Nequiski, um, the Noisy Plume on Instagram, uh, who had this incredible voice and could tell a story with deep integrity and passion that their voice ended at their own platform. And most other industries have mediums that can carry the message out for them. And this industry didn't. Um, and so that was kind of at that moment that I realized there needed to be something that, that could continue this message for something that, I had never experienced before until this point, the perception immediately shifted. And through um, kind of giving a, a platform to these creatives and to these brands, 
it has opened my eyes to showing that this is not a you versus me conversation. We're not here to slap the wrists of anybody or call anybody out by name. Um, our job here is to simply tell a side of the story that hasn't been told before and frankly is the main story that needs to be told in order to cause a heart change, whether it's right versus wrong. This is simply a story that we know that the general public can digest beautiful imagery, beautiful storytelling, uh, beautiful storytellers. Um, and we want to start the conversation there rather than trying to call out anybody by name um, or start a conflict or a debate. For Brad and all those at the Modern Huntsman, the mission became not to prove whether hunting was wrong or right, not to show that their side was better than the other. Instead, it was just to get to a point where people on either side of the spectrum could listen to and enjoy the stories, come to understand the traditions, and allow both non-hunter and hunter alike to be able to talk as friends, not throwing stones. This magazine that we're pushing and producing right now is is a mode to tell stories about people who have grown up in these traditions and followed these ethics their whole life, and also for people um, who have never really given it a second thought. They've just bought you know meat at the grocery store their whole life. Um, to be able to speak to them both in a way that starts to challenge um, and inspire some new thinking. Um, so that's my goal. Are you trying to produce a magazine that is going to interest non-hunters? Yes, absolutely. And um, how? So, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, we our intention is to educate and inspire, so that yes, we would love to have everybody um, be able to train and understand what it means to be a hunter, and then go out and begin to hunt. Uh, but at the end of the day, we realize that that's not necessarily a realistic expectation. So not only do we want to train and equip people to be able to go out and do that, but we want to be able to inspire people so much so that they at least start to change um, how they view this topic. Um, and obviously, <clears throat> we intend to do that through storytelling. We believe that um, Storytelling is the most powerful form of, of considering a certain topic or point of view because it breaks down the barriers of, of um, what you uh, perceive to be true versus what I perceive to be true. And it gets to the heart of the interpretation of how you hear something. 75 years ago, Walt Disney shared the story of a little fawn who lost its mother in the woods. That story moved many of us who never were exposed to hunting before to suddenly hate it. And now what Brad and Tyler and all those at Modern Huntsman are trying to do is fill in the other side of that story so we can understand the hunter's side. Not because one is right or wrong, but because both have a story that deserves to be heard. Adam points the bow downhill to allow room to draw back his arrow. In a slow and smooth motion, pulls back the 70 pound string until the cam locks in at full draw. He aims down the sight. There is a moment of complete stillness where time stops. I see him exhale a deep breath and in that same moment I hold mine. His finger placement switches from being in a safe position to being curled around the trigger. Quick! The thicket! With the slightest jolt, the arrow is released. There's no loud bang, nor echo of a gunshot. There isn't even a momentary lapse of the birds singing up above. It is silent. The same it was half a second ago. We head downhill toward the deer and an ultimate feeling of sorrow that flows to us. Your mother can't be with you anymore. We find her lying in the leaves amongst the many wildflowers that adorn these mountains. Adam takes a seat in the dirt beside her. He sits with her for 10 to 15 minutes, processing, correlating and embracing all the emotions that are endured when taking a life of such a majestic creature. Come, my son. There are hunters like Adam, hunters 
who see an absent glint of light in a creature's eye and completely acknowledge their responsibility and ownership of their actions. They pay their respects and are grateful for that light with every fibre of their being. It is a beautiful thing to witness and a difficult but remarkable thing to feel for the first time. Is hunting wrong? As a hunter, I understand that you have the right to answer that question for yourself. I just hope by hearing our side of the story, you can understand me and all the other hunters a little better. Special thanks to Brad and Tyler. Together with their team at the Modern Huntsman, they're working on producing the first edition of a magazine that aspires to redefine what everyone thinks of when they hear the word hunter. If you would like them to be able to make this magazine, if you're a hunter who cares about the perception that others have of you and of all of us, and if you would enjoy reading a beautiful magazine filled with stories of tradition, of adventure, and of what it's like to live as a modern huntsman, printed on beautiful, high-quality, glossy photo paper, go on over to modernhuntsman.co. Click on the link to go to their Kickstarter. They are shooting for a goal of $75,000 to help them produce this magazine, and they're already past $60,000. They just need your help as a backer. And because you're a Homesteady listener, uh, they want to give you a special discount. If you go to their Kickstarter today, you'll notice there's a special Homesteady-only backer's reward. Uh, that'll give you the magazine $5 off the first edition. So go ahead and check that out. If you'd like to see Brad and Tyler's vision for the Modern Huntsman become a reality, it's actually the first Kickstarter I've ever backed. So I'm really excited to see this happen. So let's help these guys get their magazine produced. Head on over to modernhuntsman.co and click on the link to their Kickstarter. You'll notice today's episode was commercial-free. Uh, the Modern Huntsman project, they didn't sponsor this episode. They didn't pay me to do this. It's just something I feel really strongly about and so I rushed this episode out. Uh, so if you enjoyed this episode and maybe you're thinking about hunting and you want to help support the show, we do have a hunting class uh, which is called Wild Harvest Whitetail 101. Uh, there'll be a link in the blog post right up if you want to take that class. That class is a video class. There's six lessons and it explains from day one how to learn to shoot how to find deer, how to track deer, uh, how to get properties to hunt on. It covers everything. So if you're a total beginner or if you've just had trouble getting a deer uh, over the last year or two and you want some help uh, getting a little bit better, that class is a great uh, beginner level course on whitetail hunting. Uh, we'll have a special sale right now. We'll do a half price sale right now. So if you want to get that class at half its normal price, head on over to This Is Home Study and uh, click on this episode and you'll see the link to that wild harvest class. You can get it for half price for this month. And you'll be helping to support this uh, commercial-free episode. There's a great blog post right up done by Alexia, the suburban escapee, over at thisishomesteady.com. Special thanks to Allison Holly for her help getting this show out to you. Homesteady is produced by my wife, Kay, and myself. I'm Aust, and I'm Homesteady. If you are too... Hashtag your social media posts, I am homesteady. And remember, the road is rocky, make homesteady. I know it's been pretty slow production this fall with homesteady, and I'm glad you guys haven't unsubscribed. And I thank you for all the emails and social media shoutouts asking when's the next episode. It lets us know how much you love our show and how much we mean to you. And that's why we have some really good news. So stay tuned for an update episode coming out in December where we will talk about the future of the Homesteady podcast. And I think it's going to be something you're going to get really excited for if you're a big-time homesteader and a big-time listener to Homesteady. So stay tuned for some big news, some updates, and to learn about what you can expect in 2018 from the Homesteady podcast.